Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, welcome to The Rest is History, and uh, with me is Dominic Sambrook. And Dominic, do you remember, um, we, we did an interview with GQ about yes. the podcast, and I'm not saying yeah. that to boast. Fashion tips. Um, fashion tips, the, what the well-dressed man in Chipping Norton is wearing. Um, yeah. And one of, the, one of the questions we were asked was, uh, what fields of history do you know absolutely nothing about? Yes, um, I do remember and I, that question. I paid close attention to what you said. Because oh. I thought that it might prove useful, I could store it up and then spring it on you. <laughs> right. And one of the one, one of the subjects you mentioned was the history of India. You'd, yeah, you've never been to India. You knew absolutely nothing about it. Well, I've seen Octopussy, um, <laughs> and I've also seen Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Well, what um, else is there to know? I, and I kind of figured that's kind <laughs> of it, it, right? I mean, <laughs> okay. So um, the reason I save that up is that I'm a massive. I'm a massive Indophile. In- India was the, f- the very first foreign country I ever went to. The first uh, foreign country? You went yeah, to? I landed, I landed and, in Bombay, as it then was. Um, yeah. And I spent six months there. Uh, Doing and- what? Not playing cricket, surely. I did play cricket there. Yes, I did yeah, play cricket. Yeah, but I mean, you didn't there, go to no, play cricket, I, I went, surely. I, I went, well, because India is so enormous. I mean, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of, it's massive. And it everywhere is so interesting. Yeah. Uh, we went there for honeymoon. I've been there on actually on two cricket tours. So anyway, I absolutely love it. And the last the producer time I went, has sent me a message that says most people went to Benidorm for their first foreign trip. And well, I'd never even, I, I had I'd never been to Calais, and I landed. What a, in what a gilded what a gilded youth you uh, you enjoyed. All. Not at all because I'd, I'd never been abroad. We never we never had foreign holidays. Oh, it's like we the were, Yorkshireman you know. sketch. Yes. <laughs> anyway, listen. The the last time I went to India, uh, it was with Willie Dalrymple. At his yep. amazing festival, literary festival at Jaipur. Uh, and in Jaipur, uh, I met the wonderful Aparna Andare, who was a curator at the museum in, uh, in, in, uh, in Jaipur. And she showed me around it. And I thought, bearing in mind that you know nothing about India, yep. and that we have tried and tested this format with Rachel Morley, with the British churches, yes. where she did basically the kind of, you know, her top 10 uh, British churches. I thought it would be fun to ask Aparna if she could do the impossible and give us a history of India in 10 buildings. 
Great so idea. going right the way from the ancient world, right the way up to the modern. Um, and Aparna, you are, you're joining us. Where are you joining us from? I'm in Bombay. In Bombay, Mumbai. Well, then technically, if you're going to get technical, then I live in New Bombay, which is now in Mumbai, which is outside of Bombay. It's a twin city. So if you're, okay. going to be, if you're going to be specific, then that's where I am. Well, let's be specific. Okay, so, so from New Bombay. Um, and you very bravely and gamely agreed to do this. So you've drawn up your list of, of 10 buildings. And when we say India, we're talking about the Indian subcontinent. So not, not modern day India. We're including what's now Pakistan, Afghanistan, and so on. Bangladesh. Um, yes, absolutely. And this wasn't easy, Tom. This wasn't easy at all. So I'm well, glad I'm, I'm, you know, I'm foolish um, in that sense. <laughs> no, your game, your game, your game. Well, we like to set people a challenge, don't we? <laughs> yes, we do. The challenge it was. So I live with an architectural historian and I have to say there were fights over this, um, about what was important, what was you know, what was just beautiful. So when we're recounting the history, these are not specifically, so the 10, uh, 10 sites I've chosen, they might not make their cut for being the most beautiful or things that you immediately associate with India, but they're important for the for the trajectory of Indian history. So no okay. Taj Mahal? Oh, no Taj Mahal, no. No Taj Mahal. Okay. Everyone so, knows the Taj. I mean, uh, it is gorgeous. It's too obvious. Too obvious it Tom. is too obvious. Absolutely. Even Dominic's you know. heard of the Taj Mahal. Tom, Tom is very obvious sometimes, um, apparently. You might <laughs> <But> have noticed. <laughs> okay. But have so, you been? Have you been to the Taj? Have I been to Taj Mahal? Yes. Yeah. Yes, of course. And did you yes. like it? I loved it. Um, except that my, my we went there for, for, my, for our honeymoon and my wife was sick over a large number of, of India's most historic buildings. And the Taj mm-hmm. Mahal was one of them. Oh, what a lovely story. Uh, the other one is Fatipur Sikri. <laughs> Romantic. Appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's going to mm-hmm. kill me for, t- for revealing this. On- anyway, let, 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 let's, let's reverse that to this particular conversational cul-de-sac. Yeah, we've got uh, 10 buildings to get through yes, we- and we don't want to do a <laughs> yes. Rachel Morley and leave seven yes. of them to the last five minutes. Okay, so, uh, so Apollo, what is your first building? Okay, so the first site we'll pick is the Indus Valley Civilization and a site called Mohenjo-daro, which means the Mound of the Dead. And this is the high point of Harappan civilization between 2600 uh, to 1900 BCE. I think what is most interesting is the Great Park, um, which is how every big swimming pool ought to be. It's on top of a citadel. And um, it's got channels around and lots of changing rooms and bathrooms. Um, so it probably was a ritual space and um, is this fantastic water. Um, it's, it's like a swimming pool, right? So it, it's got it uses tar and it uses gypsum plaster. So it's quite watertight. And um, you could probably look all over from it now. Harappans or the Indus Valley civilization thrived on trade, it thrived on commerce, it thrived, and um, they also basically set up big city and trading outposts. And they had to then move. Why did the Indus civilization fade out? We don't know, but it perhaps was also a direct um, result of climate change because water uh, had moved out or. Um, so it's getting hotter. When I don't know if it was getting hotter, but I think that, that I think well, the, the, the river flowed differently. And so upon does that mean that um basically this is a dead end? I mean what happened to the, to these cities? If they were completely abandoned, were they forgotten about? I don't think they were 
I, yes, they were probably forgotten about. And if we excavated a lot more, I'm sure we'd find more evidence and more sites. Um, nobody really knows what happened to them. Um, and, you know, but what they've left behind are more mysteries and questions than they have left answers. Fabulous. OK, well, that's a great that's a great yeah, one. A very interesting one. So, so that's so that's, so that's sort of. At that point, would you say that Indus sort of valley civilization is it's one of a handful on the world, isn't it? I mean, this must have been one of the most glittering cities on earth at the time. Am Absolutely. I right? It had lots of people living there. It had people who were traveling and trade happening. So this would have been this would have been a high point of urban life. Um and yeah. and I, I really hope that we can sort of go and there are more archaeological discoveries that are happening. Um, there are people who are analyzing data. We're looking at objects more carefully. Um, but the fact is that we don't really know very much, but we are finding more every day. Okay. We're moving quite slowly, Tom, already, I noticed. Oh, God, are we? We're in a Rachel Morley situation. Okay. No, we're not going to be in one. <laughs> okay, that's good. That's high, that's, um, those are brave words. Yes, okay. because so, uh, I have notes, and I, I have decided to stick to my notes. Okay. Um, okay. So, <laughs> Number two, second, then. Number two. My second site is um, a site that I don't know if many people have heard about. It's, they're called the Barabar Caves. Tom, do you know where they are? Uh, I, know, I know intimately. No, very well. yeah. <laughs> No, so neither of us have heard of it. <laughs> <laughs> so you, um, what you've heard of are rock-cut temples, right? You've heard of cave sites across India. And yes. these are probably some of the oldest cave sites there are. And they go back to the third century before, uh, before the common era. Um, and they're, they're basically a link to how architecture grows across the subcontinent. They belong to the Mauryan age and they have Ashokan e uh, rock-cut edicts. And they're in a part of east of India called Bihar. So these are third century caves and the, you can see how architecture develops, develops from wood and bamboo to carving in stone. So there's a mimicking of various material that, that, that you can see. You talked about this being the Mauryan Empire. Can you say yes. something about that for those of us, those of us of little brain who don't know what that is? Yes, of course. So the Mauryans is this is a, a very large empire that takes over all, a, a huge chunk of the country. And the most fa famous Mauryan king was Ashoka. And um, he converts to Buddhism at one point. And it's basically... Because he's so upset uh, by the battle, isn't he? he, he that's the but story. But that's what they say. I mean, you know, why do emperors... Uh, it, it makes for a neat story. Do you want to quickly tell us the story, you know, Tom? No, no, well, no, no, so it's not Tom's podcast. No. Tom, get off the podcast. <laughs> well, but, so, I mean, it, it is a very romantic story yeah. that he's this great conqueror and he wins a great battle and he's so upset by the battle that he becomes a Buddhist. But yeah. what I've always thought the point of the story was that, that he only decides to become a Buddhist after he's won the battle. So he's already got the empire. Yes. He's virtue so, signaling. Is that what he's doing? <laughs> well, possibly. That might be one way to put it. So interestingly, uh, there are the, the tales that we get to know about the Mauryans also come from Greek sources, right? So you have uh, diplo Greek diplomats who are in Patliputra, which is now Patna in the east of India. And then you've got several people who are traveling in. And Ashoka is a later king who also sort of expands it and leaves a lot of, uh, he leaves stone and rock cut edicts. Now, um, I should probably tell you that Ashoka was reigning around 273 to 232 uh, before Common Era and is one of the greatest sort of, you know, legendary kings of, of 
India. But, but, and also just, I mean, just, you know, you, you talked about the Greek influences. So this is in the wake of Alexander the Great kind of crashing into the Indus. And, and so you do, this is a period where you have Greek Indian influences kind of mixing and, 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 and mingling with each other. Um, Not only will Greek influences mix and mingle, but they'll also leave a, 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 a legacy of art and architecture. Um, and, and the, and Buddhism will bring beautiful rock, uh, you know, beautiful sculptures that will have Hellenistic influences. But this is happening not only in the northwest frontier province, which is mostly Afghanistan and that sort of region, but you see it across the north, across uh, the north of India. So there's a, there's a, this is a period. I think the one thing to realize is that you never have watertight, um, sort of independent civilizations that don't have connections to the world. Everything yeah. is a clash of civilizations. Everything is an encounter of different people. And that's what you see reflected in art and architecture. Yeah, so Pana, we did we did an episode on, on Afghanistan and we, we, we talked about the, the way in, in which um, the wealth of India is constantly attracting outsiders. Um, mostly coming through the you know the Hindu Kush and so on. So Alexander would be, I guess, an example of that. Um, Absolutely. So, so number three, what's number three? Number three is a site called Udaygiri, which literally means that it is the uh, the hill of the rising sun, as it were, in Madhya Pradesh. That's the central province in India and a small town called Vidisha. Now, everyone thinks about um, this part of the world and thinks about the great Sanji Stupa, which was where they thought the relics of Buddha would be. Uh, but that's not the site we're going to talk about. We're talking about Udaiguri and specifically cave number five in Udaiguri. Another cave. The, you love a cave. <laughs> we do, I do love a good cave. It's all caves that with is you. True. It is all caves with me. <laughs> so cave number five is not how you typically imagine a cave, which is a dark space that you have to sort of crawl into. When you walk up Vidishat, when you walk up Udaiguri, where we are, you basically find yourself in in an audience uh, sort of hall structure where there's a massive stone carved Varaha, which is the Bor Avtar of the great god Vishnu. Um, and he's rescuing Bhudevi, who signifies the earth goddess. And um, in in audience is Chandragupta II, who is a Gupta king. And uh, this is a very, very important site because it also makes a clear link between divinity and kingship and you've got um, and while there is the earth is being rescued perhaps the protector of earth in this realm Chandragupta is in audience so it's a very important and quite a spectacular cave site and um, and that's my num- choice number three so, so Chandragupta he is the guy is he the guy that gives a load of elephants to the uh to Seleucus, the one of Alexander's successors, is that one of his claims to fame? Okay, everyone gives elephants to everyone. Oh, okay, all right. I'm I, sorry. Is that just a, that's just a constant theme of Indian history, the transfer of elephants? It is. If you if you came if you came to India, I'd get you an elephant too. Oh, that's a that's a, that's, <laughs> that's a lovely invitation. Thank you. <laughs> So um, Chandragupta, of course, Chandragupta the second is, of course, a very important king, and this kind of um, articulation of kingship and power hasn't quite really been seen before. We're looking at um, this massive site. It also has several other sculptures. But when I say it's massive, it is it is taller than Tom is, right? So it is larger than life. And you have to look this site up because 
um, while we're in presence of divinity and kingship, um, you've got several other gods and including, you know, the gods of the snake land. So Nagadevdas, who are all in, um, who are all in attendance as this boar god rescues, uh, Bhudevi. So even the choice of having, um, a person, uh, having, you know, the king, uh, depicted in, um, in presence of this sort of, uh, of this tableau is quite significant. And we're now in the fifth century. So because, because upon one of the, the things that immediately strikes um, someone going from Europe to India. So, so in Europe, all the kind of the classical gods are gone. Nobody worships them anymore. Um, mm-hmm. In India, the, you know, you talked about Vishnu. Vishnu is still worshipped. So this tradition of, of temple building remains a living one. Uh, and, and Absolutely. Kind of, the sense of, of, you know, that history is alive, perhaps in India, in a way that it, it, you know, the distant past isn't in Europe is, is really striking, I always found. Well, I, I also think that um, forms of worship change and, um, and you know, religions become fashionable and then they go away. So for a long time, Buddhism, which was so important in building these ma- massive sites with kings t- turning Buddhists, um, it just disappeared from the subcontinent. Um, in, the, in the same way, iconoclasm constantly happens to these great sites where you have the rise of a certain kind of religion and then it fades away and then sometimes it's retrieved or, or a mythical past gets retrieved constantly to, to legitimize rule. Um, is there, but it's not in the same way, um, that religion is practiced. So while, yeah. while temples are being built, um, they, they constantly change and it, it is, it, it, there are newer, there are newer myths that happen. There are newer, uh, sites that get built. Even visually things are different. And that's brilliant because it enables you to choose buildings that exemplify certain periods of Indian history and otherwise this Absolutely. whole project wouldn't be working. So, no, so, so number three, we've got to say, so what's number four? Ooh, um, number four. And it's very interesting that we are talking about, you know, religions because we're now going to change track from, you know, from a Jain Buddhist site to a Muslim site. And we're now in the seventh century and in the land of Kerala uh, to the Cheraman Juma, uh, Jama Masjid. Where so Kerala the, uh, is in the, sa- the south of India. Um, Kerala is in the south of India, further down from, from Maharashtra and Bombay. And um, it's, the land, and it's the land where um, Raymond ships would go. Uh, it's, it's where supposedly St. Thomas went, isn't it? Uh, it is, so it the, is where, yes. So it's, it it's, is. Open, it's open to the Middle East. It is open to the Middle East and it's open to the Arabs. And that's where you have uh, the first mosque being built. And this mosque was built in the, in the lifetime of the Prophet, where one of the, where the Cheraman king converts to, to Islam, um, because he has a dream where the, where the moon splits into two. And it's the same uh, sort of uh, miracle that, that uh, the prophet has performed in Mecca for uh, for for people those for people who don't believe him, and he's quite puzzled. The king is quite puzzled about what this this dream means, and an Arab tells him. So there are lots of legends around um, around how Islam got to Kerala and what um, and and why um, the Cheraman uh, Perumal ruler uh, basically converted. But what's interesting is that the site of the first mosque still stands. So in about 1505. Um, the Portuguese come in and destroy this mosque, um, the Jama Masjid. Um, and 
what is interesting is that there's still a model of what the original looked like um, and what the original was like. And we have a direct link and references to what a sixth century mosque, what a seventh century mosque in India would be. That's amazing. That's that. Can I ask a question, Abana? Yes, please. Why do you, why do you think um, he converted? Because often conversion goes hand in hand with kind of politics, with kind of diplomacy. So people would adopt Christianity, for example, because they, you know, Orthodox Christianity, because they wanted to curry favor with Constantinople or something. But if this is yeah. in the lifetime of the prophet, what is in it for the Indians in converting to Islam? So we're, we're looking at Kerala, which also has a, has a very different um socio-economic structure it isn't the same as as the rest of of the country is the malabar coast especially this region has several connections so um it's likely that there that this sort of movement from or the moving from uh, to to islam would would be good for would shake up um pre-existing court practices um, right I'm assuming that there's also a strong socio-economic political reason why um, a ruler would convert. Apparently, you also say, I mean, so, so there's Christians get there and there's a synagogue. So you've mm -hmm. got Jews and Christians and Islam is a kind of, you know, part of it draws on, on Jewish and Christian traditions. So perhaps yes. it had kind of warmed things up. And I suppose the contrast between this mosque in Kerala, which is presumably brought by by traders and by by people crossing the sea, mm -hmm. with the subsequent arrival of, of India, the Muslims who invade India are coming across what is now Pakistan into the north. But they're coming they're coming into the north and Kerala is further down south. Yeah, right? so that's so the, a difference, so it, isn't it? It, it's a it's an absolute difference, but we have to also remember that there are um, trade links over the sea. So sea routes exist, and while you know while waves of invasion come in from the north, you have sustained trade trade relationships that happen over the Arabian Sea. So you've got connections to Africa, you've got connections to the Arab world, um, and it's always been a thriving, vibrant yeah. uh, space. Now. I have to also say that if you look at the model of what the original mosque was, it is extremely local to to Kerala. So it it's not what you, it's not a it's not a dome structure. It doesn't look like anything from an uh, you know from from an Arabian Nights fantasy. It looks like a like a building that you'd find in Kerala. Right. Um, and apparently, um, it faced the wrong way. I don't know this. I, I I was reading something online where I found that it was only in in the year thousand CE that they managed to that they realized, oops, we need to face west, not east, and they had to <laughs> they, they had to change the mirror. So, so, so the coming of Islam to India is obviously absolutely fundamental kind of break point in 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 the course of Indian history. So we. Have, I'm not sure I agree with that. Oh, okay, okay. But yes, because so, I think that the, I think that I think that every encounter so far is important. Every encounter, every cultural encounter, um, you know, whether it was the rise of Buddhism, whether it was the the Sanskrit age, whether the Vedic age, um, the, the you know the the um, the Greeks coming into the country, and 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 a relationship with China as well. I think each sort of encounter was was independent and impressive i suppose in terms of but but in terms of buildings that, yeah that, of that, course that, is, that, that, that islam there is only one god and that it generally doesn't encourage uh the portrayal of 
the human form, perhaps in the way that previous in traditions have Don't done. you also know that that is not quite true? Well, I, I'm, I'm dealing with very broad Tom, you're being schooled in your own podcast. I know. I'm dealing in very broad brush. I'm dealing in very broad brush terms here. But but there is, a, I mean, that it, it does kind of introduce quite a radically new artistic and architectural tradition, don't you think? An iconism, not not you know, not depicting in human form, was also a Buddhist practice. You had yes. the Buddha depicted as a tree, as a as the as a Bodhi tree, as a um, as the wheel, as you know, just by his feet. So I think the subcontinent was always quite used to creative ways of expressing God or divinity or important figures. What Islam brings, and it's and it. It does so in waves, right? So, and in various parts of the country, it again looks different. In Kerala, it looks different. Um, we're going ahead of ourselves, or at least, you know, one stop ahead of ourselves. Um, if we start to think about the, the impact of Islam, um, on, on the Deccan, um, which brings with it, a, a, Central, an architectural Central tradition India, of Central, it. India. Central India yeah. from east coast to west coast, um, and sort of sandwiched between two mount, uh, two major, uh, mountain ranges. So, You've got Islam is important, but we also think we we have several great kingdoms and and two of them we shall discuss now as point number four. Well, actually, let's discuss after the break. Let's discuss after oh. the break. So we've done okay. we've done four and we've, we've done got six four. to go. Uh-huh. So you're one up on Rachel Morley with the churches. <laughs> we've done three <laughs> by this point. So we will take if a break Tom now, and when we come back, constantly distract me. From my I know. Agenda. I'm sorry. I know. I'm really sorry, and I won't in the second half. <laughs> it's I bad. Promise. It is bad. We will be. We we will be back in a minute. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college, and so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity super fan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Rest is History. Um, extraordinary scenes here, as Tom Holland has <laughs> pledged. He has pledged publicly and he pledged privately during the break that he would stop talking in the second half and allow Aparna to take us through her remaining six buildings that will explain all of Indian history. Very exciting moment. So, Aparna, you're on to number... What are we on? Number five now. Number five. We're on number five. And I have to say that Tom and I had a bit of an email war over this because we're so we're, we've now moved into what people might think of as medieval India. And we're moving 
specifically south. We've spoken about Kerala. We are going into the mainland a little bit and we're thinking about southern superpowers, the kingdoms of Chola and the Vichanakra kingdoms. Now, each of these can have their own podcast. Each of these kingdoms could, could and should have their own podcasts and there are experts okay. on this. So I am going to only talk about the Raja Rajeshwara temple um, in Tanjavur that the Cholas built. This is a massive temple. It's com- it is going to completely change the way temple building will happen in, in India after this. And so Pana, when, 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 is this, when is this temple built? So Raja Rajeshwara Chola builds the Brihadeshwara temple between 1003 to 1010 CE. So we're in the millennium now. Um, and it's in Tanjavur, uh, which is in southern India. And it's massive. Um, and what you have is that there are several architectural styles that now come in. So you have the Vimana, you have the Mandapa, you have a, you have a different style of architecture that's separate from northern architect, from the northern styles of temple architecture, which is called the Nagara. And here we have the Dravida style of architecture. Um, the spire, as it were, of this is about 216 feet high. So the Shikara goes right up and everything else is dwarfed against this. So it is a statement of engineering, it's a state, it's a larger than life temple building that the Cholas have built. And while they build large, they also make these gorgeous bronze sculptures that you see in collections around the world, and they're absolutely sublime. So um, these are the two, and they're Hindu kings. If they're building big, yeah. then they must be incredibly rich. Is that? Is they that are very, very rich. Absolutely. And this is what they're, they're sort of establishing themselves as the as the richest dynasty, as someone very, very influential. And this is just the high point of Chola architecture, the Brihadeshwara temple. And, and Aparna, can I, can I jump in? You said this was yes, medieval. Yes. We're getting into medieval India. But medieval is a, is a kind of European concept, right? I mean, is there such a thing as medieval India? Does that make any sense? No, it doesn't. Because medieval <laughs> okay. India is different. Um, but I think... How I would think of medieval is basically, I was thinking about this in European terms where you're, you're sort of bookending it between the 7th century to the, about the 14th, right? Um, so, you know, birth of Islam to Renaissance, if that's how yeah. you understand medieval. Um, yeah. So we're, I, I don't like the term medieval, although my degree was called, um, that I started <laughs> in Edinburgh, was called Art in the Global Middle Ages. And we spent time just sort of pulling that apart, saying, what is the Middle Age? Um, I'm also teaching a class next week on medieval India, and we're, and that's almost early modern, um, you know, the time period I'm going into. So no, no, no to medieval. But what happens a little bit later, um, also between 1000 to 1400 CE, is that a capital, um, a, a great kingdom is being consolidated. And that is the Vijayanagara kingdom. And its capital, Hampi, is, is founded in about the, in about 1343. Um, Hampi is, um, currently in the middle of nowhere. Um, you can't take a direct flight to Hampi. It's either a long train ride, bus ride, or you drive down for hours. Um, and it is, and the reason why it is where it is, is because it also stands on an ancient site that has cultural significance and, and previous religious significance. So Hampi is called, and the regions around Hampi were called Kishkinda, which has a Ramayana reference. But here you have massive temples, you have palaces that are built, you've got uh, these huge, um, you know, stone structures and and chariot um, sort of structures. And 
temple chariot structures, I mean. And, and apparently, a, you, you, you've mentioned it because I said I wanted it, basically. You wanted I was, it, I was, yeah. I was very bullying about this. Tom, that's shocking. I know it you is. You invite it's somebody shocking. on and then you toss them around and tell I them what to I, 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 I politely suggested. Was but it polite? I, which is fine. Was it polite, yes, Abana? It was very, it was very polite. Um, so it, it, it became it's 5A amazing. and 5B. It, it's, it's such an amazing place. So I saw it, I must have been 18 when I saw it. And I haven't been back mm-hmm. since, but I still remember it vividly as, as one of the most extraordinary places I've ever been. And certainly when I went there, it was the most extraordinary place I've ever been. And it is so enormous. And I think I it's seem to remember it was huge. people saying that it was the largest city in the world outside China, perhaps at that time. And as you it say, was, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's astonishing. And it has this gorgeous river, the Tungabhadra. So, you know, it's in a basin and it's it was meant to impress. And um and and they knew what they were doing with this sort of building of this grand city. And Vijayanagara is probably also the the empire, um, w- you know, was was massive, had great influences. And when the Vijayanagara empire sort of collapsed, it gave rise in that 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 space. Um, the Bahamanids took over, and you had the entry of the of the large Muslim empire um, that also had links to Iran and Central Asia, so brought about a completely different visual language um, and architectural style. And what happened to the city then? If it's in the middle of nowhere, it's in the middle of nowhere, it's just going to decline or do people loot it or what happens? So it goes into decline. I think people, I, I think, yes, a bit of looting would happen because these are also when you have temples, they're also repositories of great wealth, right? So you've got people um, who move away. And I think it just sort of gets forgotten at some point um, because you have different building projects, capital shift, um, people move to where there's trade and commerce, right? And where there's, so the seat of power is where where um, you will have more people come in and stay. And so when, when, that, when, that, when that falls, it's the whole of India then under Muslim rule. Are there any Hindu kingdoms left? But they're different. Um, so there are different empires. The Bahamanids never quite take over. Um, they don't go sort of the north of um, the Vindhyas. Um, you have, you know, so they, they stick to the Deccan. But, but, but are there any independent Hindu kingdoms left? Yes, of course, there will be independent kingdoms and there will be kings who are fighting. Varangal would be one. Um, so you do have them in pockets. And we're, we're still... It's such a massive country, right? Such a, mm. you know, so nobody really ever until, and not even, you know, not even English colonization takes over completely. Okay. So, but, so, so these great medieval Hindu kingdoms collapse. Yes. Um, they collapse. I mean, with with, they with exceptions, uh, it, mm. it's large, India is now largely Muslim ruled. Uh, and yes. we're going into the early modern period. So, what do we have at number six? Uh, we're now traveling further north to so number six is perhaps one of the most beautiful sites and a very interesting and contested site too. Um, you've heard of this, you know, slightly tall building called the Kutub Minar, mm-hmm. um, which basically is, is a large, um, it, it, it's a tower of victory as it were. And it's a 12th century complex called the Kutub Minar complex in the heart of Delhi, um, now in the heart of Delhi, but, um, in one of the old cities of Delhi, um, called Meroli. And it's a set of very interesting sites. Um, so 12th century complex built by the Sultanates, um, 
by the Sultanate rulers. And you've got a fourth or fifth century pillar. You've got the Qutub Minar itself, which was built around 1193. The pillar is made of iron, isn't it? The, that, the pillar is made of iron. And which is kind of very unusual at the time, to a whole pillar of iron. No, because Ashokan, no, not really, because you had several of these sort of monolithic um, or iron pillars and, and they were experimenting um, and they were putting them around the country. Um, so Ashokan pillars were everywhere. Most of them were stone. Um, I don't think that this was an exception in that sense. But, but, but the, to pick up on Tom's earlier points about the previous site, they must be incredibly rich to be building pillars. To, I mean, have tons of iron to be building. They might, pi- I mean, you know, they're mining. And I also suppose that um, they would reuse a lot of this as time goes on. Right. But they're definitely rich, aren't they? You mean we're a rich country? Yes. Poor people? Yes. <laughs> so so tell, us more, tell us more about the Qutub Minar. So you've got, and what I've, the reason why I've picked the Qutub Minar is not because it's such a fantastic structure with, you know, beautiful calligraphic panels and the use of sandstone and all of that. Why I've picked this is because it's got a set of very interesting um, structures around it. So you've got the, the iron pillar, which is 4th or 5th century of the Qutub Minar itself. You've got the tomb of Il-Tutmish, um and Sultan Il-Tutmish died in 1235. You have the Alai Minar and Darwaza from 1311. So the Qutub Minar mosque that gets built uses spolia, right? So they so stuff nicked from other temples and things. Stuff nicked from Jain temples, Hindu temples. Now, what's important about the way spolia is used is that it's a very deliberate articulation of power and authority over other religions too. So it's not as simple as saying, hey, I've got this column, I'm going to just use it. But it also, you know, when you invert these things, so spolia is is not innocent, um, is what I'm saying. Yeah. So which is yeah. why yeah, absolutely. Um, yes. I think that the Qutub Minar complex becomes very imp- uh, important and interesting. And this trope of, I think, um, this trope of Islamic invaders as iconoclasts and as people who would ruin temple sites just to build their own um, is is sort of they these sites like these give uh, give the whole iconoclasm and iconoclasts idea visual and material proof because what has happened is that in the past everyone is iconoclastic right buddhist cave sites get usurped by hindu cave sites but you don't leave as much visual evidence or that evidence is lost indeed over centuries um but with a lot of islamic rulers especially around the 12th century you have proof that temples were being brought down um to re- to create mosques and i think that the whole narrative of iconoclastic Islam is reiterated constantly because of these very highly visible um, architectural patterns. So uh, number seven, what have we got? Number seven is we're now sort of inching closer to the early modern um, and we have another very important dynasty and that are the the Grand Mughals who would never Mm. call themselves the Mughals, of course, because, you know, they think of Mongols as uncouth. They would think of themselves as, uh, themselves as Timurid princes, but um, we, we, we know them all as the Mughals. And Mughals come to India with the young prince Babur, um, who wants to conquer. And he, you know, he's sort of getting thrown out of Central Asia, has to fight for his own land um, and decides to head east um, to India. And one of the first things he does when he captures Kabul um, in Afghanistan is that, he 
sets up a garden. He creates his own garden. This is a Persian thing, isn't it? The walled it garden? A it's a, it's yes. a Persian idea, yeah. It's a fortunate idea that he brings in, and um, then his successes also illustrate the fact that Barber is building gardens. Barber was quite garden crazy. I mean, he had a green thumb. He liked his gardens. He missed fruits of Central Asia and cried, which I, I find that quite endearing about him because he misses his home and he's trying to create a new home for himself, um, whether you know other people like it or not. Um, but I like the fact that one of the first things that you would build in the subcontinent and to make it your own is a garden. So it's a so, romantic idea also. Yeah. So so, so he, he founds the dynasty that, that in the long run, the most famous monument is the Taj Mahal. And perhaps we should just very fleetingly. He's desperate to talk about that. Uh, well, just so. very fleetingly mention it because well, it's that, not, that's it. Yes, well, yes, he founds the Mughal dynasty that builds the Taj Mahal, which is quite a lovely site. It is. It's I not have, bad, is it? I mean, it's it's, it's, it's not right. bad. But, it's not bad at all. No, but so, I, but, okay, so, so Mughal, I, I tell you Mughal architecture, Mughal no. architecture. Um, yes, Mughal architecture is great, but I'll tell you my, my reservations about the Taj and the way we see it now is that the English came in and flattened oh. all its gardens and, and gave us lawns there. So that's and, what I was going to ask was that it, 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 I remember going and the guide saying it was much more beautiful before the British came. There you go. Because gardens themselves were designed and I think that, and which is, which brings us back to the Bhagavad and Fidelity is that you could never have seen the Taj in you know in its entirety you always got glimpses of it and while you walk through there were trees that had fra- and flowers and fragrances and fruits so it was a multi-sensorial experience and it's very important to also realize that tombs and gardens are not just for commemoration um, but they're also a way of keeping land under control um, so when you create a large tomb garden it also means that your family can hold on to the land like that. Yes. Um, you know, more than just, it's not only just the architecture. Um, but I also think that the Taj Mahal, you know, across from the river, if you sort of moved up river a little bit, um, it was a tomb of Idmat Dola that Nur Jahan, uh, it, it was a tomb of uh, Idmat Dola that daughter builds, um, which is just fabulous. And, and you know, yeah. the work, uh, it, it's it's beautiful, all of it this. Is be- yeah. it's, it, it's, the inlay it's re- and the marble yeah. and the sandstone. So yes, it's quite it's quite romantic. I, I, I like the way nice that we have stuff. actually cleverly yes. smuggled in the Taj Mahal. That was shameless. Tom. <laughs> so that was shameless. So so onto eight now. Yeah, we're closing yeah. in. We're onto eight, and it's a good thing that we've spoken about the Taj Mahal because guess, who, guess whom did the land belong to? It belonged to the Amber Jaipur rulers. Um, so the site for the Taj Mahal was bought. From the, from the rulers of the house of Amber, which later becomes Jaipur. And I'm dragging us kicking and screaming into the 18th century, where in 1727, the grand city of Jaipur is being built. So we're in Rajasthan but and Dominic will know this because, because Udaipur is also in Rajasthan and Udaipur is in Octopussy. It is. Go hey. on. Tell you, tell your story. Tell your story. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're doing. Didn't you bowl out the Maharaja? No, I'm not, of, men- no I'm, not, I'm not mentioning. I'm not mentioning the fact I bowled the Crown Prince of Udaipur out. Yeah, middle stump. I'm not. I'm not going to tell that story. I'm distracting from a partner who's telling us about. Yes, China. but you, you do know that you know if you if you can beat them at polo, that's the story to tell. Okay, I've yeah. never played polo. Tom, Tom, <laughs> you've never seen Tom on a horse. I mean, <laughs> no. that's a very different, uh, very very different Listen, story. Listen, we're galloping. We've got to be running out of time here. We're talking about me no. on a horse. So, <laughs> stop, Dominic, mis- stop misbehaving. 
Apana, so Jaipur. what we've got, what we've got is that in about in the early decades of the 18th century, you have the great Mughal Empire that begins to crumble because Aurangzeb is dead. Um, in the Mughal court, you've got Rajput rulers at very high positions, and everyone sort of knows that there is a lacuna in power. And what Savai Jaising II, who's a very high-ranking official, what he does is that he a bids on the wrong person to take over after uh, the death of Aurangzeb, but also realizes that this is his chance to move into a kingdom of his own and to move from being a high-ranking courtier to being a maharaja of his own right. He founds Jaipur in 1727 and designs it. He is also an astronomer, a mathematician, so which is why you've got an observatory. And Jaipur as a city, as the world city, is very cleverly designed in grids, and he invites people to live in Jaipur. It's an architectural marvel. Um, it's, it's, it has this unified facade of, San, uh, of, of terracotta and um, and it's plastered, so it, it, you know, which is why it's called the Pink City. Um, so it looks a certain way. It's meant to wow. It's meant to get when you go in to for you to realize this is a very prosperous capital. It's not a traditional uh, capital city that's heavily fortified, but it has axes um, where the the king's palace is at the center, uh, right next to the the temple of Govindevji, who's the presiding deity and a form of Krishna. So it it's a city that works on several layers of religion, of kingship, of commerce, and of prosperity, and that's how it stays. Why is it not heavily fortified? Given that this is quite, I've, I've, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is quite an anarchic period in Indian history kind of crumbling empires and competing kingdoms and so on. So why wouldn't they fortify it? So, well, they're making friends with the English. They have an army of their own. So, and it is a walled city, so you have gates that they can seal shut. But it doesn't have... And it has forts nearby. Um, right. It, the, 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 the location of Jaipur is also such that it, it has mountains, the Aravli ranges that surround it, but it's not, um, you know, it, but, and, it's easy, but it's, and it is just off a highway. Um, of a very important, prosperous trade route between Agra and Ajmer. Um, so it is a city that is meant to be prosperous. Um, why would you not fortify it? Because you dealt with things diplomatically. Mm-hmm. Jaipur rulers always sort of knew which way the, their bread was going to be buttered. So they were very, you know, they were high-ranking officials with um, in the, when the Mughals were powerful. Um, they made friends with the English quite quickly. They had a resident in um, who lived in Jaipur. They also, in fact, offered their army to, um, to the English at, at um, some point and supported the the English side when the rebellion first happened. Okay, so right. so you 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 talk about that you talk about the English, the British. Uh, we we have two two places left on your your top ten. Do the British feature? Are they number nine? Do they? I think we have to talk about them at some point. I was, you know. Um, yeah, go on. And I think that an interesting point for us to talk about the intervention, and especially because we're talking about architecture, is that we think about the fa- the formation of a new style of architecture, which is called the Indo-Saracenic style, which we've got lots to thank Samuel Swinton Jacob, who also was in Jaipur for a long time. Um, so it's, it's an amalgamation of various Indic elements um, and European taste, right? So it's basically England meets um, India for, for architecture. And one of the most beautiful pieces of that is the gateway of india 
which is in Mumbai, and um, it faces west, and it's sort of the gateway to the east because every when uh, when George the Fifth came with his concert for the Delhi Darbar in 1911, they landed at Apollo Bandar, and this gateway was then created, uh, was constructed a few years later to commemorate that. Landing. So it's kind of like a triumphal arch, is it? It is sort of, and but it's also where we said goodbye to the last of the colonizers, and you know, put them on a ship, and um, and that's where you know ceremonially England left India. The, um, so that's the point. But we can't only talk about British intervention in the 20th century without talking about the partition. Um, right. So, so when India and Pakistan become. Separate India, countries. Pakistan, yes, Bangladesh in 1947. So we, when we think about the partition, we always sort of think about the partition towards the West. So India and Pakistan, we frequently forget that there was an equally tumultuous time for when Bangladesh, which is at that time East Pakistan. So there was a country that was separated with a large landmass between it. Um, and then Bangladesh uh, also had its own independence. So India being part of the Indian subcontinent getting partitioned into Pakistan, India and Bangladesh. Um, this was such a massive tragedy that we can't quite think of a monument. In fact, it was only in 2015 that um, the Partition Museum was set up in Amritsar that started to gather artifacts and oral histories. It is such a, it was the largest migration that happened in the history of humanity. Several thousand people died. I don't think that this country or any of these three countries have really addressed the trauma and have gotten over uh, the trauma of Partition. It has been 75 years. Um, so, I'd like to think about a small story called Tobatek Singh, which was written by Sadat Hassan Manto, um, where there, where India and Pakistan has been, part, uh, you know, the, the, the partition has happened and now they're trying to figure out what happens to the lunatics. So there are two, there's an asylum for the mentally challenged, the lunatics, and one of them wants to go back to Tobatek Singh, which is where his ancestral land was, and no one could really figure out whether it was in India or was it in Pakistan. And it's a very touching story of a fictitious village in the middle of, you know, that is caught between these two countries getting so brutally sliced up without much thought. Um, and on that somber note, I think I think the only way we can deal with partition and to think about that is perhaps through literature. Until we get to a right. point where we can create a monument for it, which I hope will happen. Where would where would such a monument be? That's an interesting question. So, you know, where would you put the monument on the on the partition line? It's it's a very long line. The one between India and Pakistan has a barbed wire throughout. There's a so there is one entry point between the two, which is called the Vaga border, and they have ceremonial um, army uh, armies of both sides sort of have these tattoos and and. And yes, the guards are kind of very stage. fancily dressed, aren't they? And yes. And kind of and, march up to each I, other. I, I, exactly. And I think that the atmosphere is us versus them, which is not how this needs to be, because hmm. ultimately we have more in common with each other than um, than, yeah. than differences. Yeah. And I think yeah. politics has really sort of stepped in. Um where would this be? And 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 of course, also on the on the eastern end, where Bangladesh was was such is is still is such an important and integral part of culture um, of of Bengal. So the we've final done the, the final countdown number ten. Number ten is a building that no longer stands. Oh, it oh. is 
that's radical. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Um, and I think that it, it sort of tells us the story of a very fast changing India. And I'd like to think about the Hall of Nations and the Nehru Pavilion, which was built in 1972 in New Delhi again at Pragati Maidan as an exhibition space. It was the high point of brutalist architecture and built by an architect called Raj Raval, who saw his building getting built, celebrated, won awards and then destroyed in front of him. That must have been depressing. I think he took it rather philosophical. I mean, it was it was anger inducing. I think it was infuriating rather than depressing um, because it none of, nobody wanted the building to go. And essentially what they're doing is that they're flattening Pragati Medan out to create these new modern edifices um, and conference centers with air conditioning which is also um, a sub, it, it basically takes on Nehruvian ideas and philosophy of what the Indian nation needs to be. And current political leaders want to rewrite history and erase it um, in a very specific way. So Hall of Nations is the beginning of a large scale demolition and destruction of what secular, forward thinking, free and liberal India used to be. Gosh, I'm looking at the building now. I'm looking at a picture online. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing looking building. As you say, it's a kind of, it's a, it's a, it's a, a classic kind of post-war brutalist sort of car modernist park. building. And yes. yet, well, I mean, that's being very harsh, Tom. It doesn't look like a car park. I just ignored Tom Holland. Um, uh, and, and it was demolished, what, 2017, 2018 or something? 2016, 2017. And this was still being challenged in court and overnight they brought it down. Um, so, and and I is this, this part of a sort of backlash against yeah against that image of a of a kind of democratic secular um, non populist yes, kind of of, of Nehruvian India essentially because um, Indira Gandhi took great interest in when this building was being built in seventy two um, it is a backlash against against a progressive secular India and it it escalates greatly so I had to talk about this because. Um, Kaigan Mehta, who's an architectural historian and writer and a friend of mine, basically says that you can sum up the, uh, you can bookend the story of in modern Indian architecture between two demolitions, one of Babri Masjid in 92 and then um, so tell us just 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 tell us about that one because that is, I mean, really important and and a very contested site. It is a contested site. So Babur, whose garden we discussed, also allegedly built a, um, a mosque on an old temple site, which is not unheard of. I mean, you would do, people have no, have done this, but apparently this was the site that was the birthplace of the god Ram um, from the Ramayana, which is ultimately a story and, um, and a re- important religious figure. And in 92, a Hindu right-wing organization gathered several thousand people and they went off to Ayodhya where they believed that that was where Ram was born and demolished this temple. Um, and I think that after 92, India really changed um, and and, and sec- this, the idea of secular India was challenged and we're seeing um, so many years later, we're seeing the, uh, the result of it. And the Prime Minister Narendra Modi laid the foundation stone of a new temple to Rama on the site. What was and it? Uh, two years yes. ago? Um, I think it was two years ago. Was it ago. last year? Was it last year? I think actually, I think no, it was, I think last it was summer, two years. It? It, it had to be before, um, I think it was It was two years ago. And he's, and a, he's, he's a modest man because he's also he's named 
the largest cricket stadium in the world is named after him. There's a story there, isn't there, Tom? There is a story. How do you know? So in, in <laughs> England, England were playing India in the, uh, I think in was it January or February, test match there. In, it's in Ahmedabad. And, uh, and, and I said, I tweeted, um, you know, very modest of, of the Prime Minister to have a, the world's largest cricket stadium named after him. And uh, it got picked up by various um, angry supporters of Narendra Modi who thought that I was Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And so this. they they launched this. they launched a boycott of Marvel films. <laughs> you see, <laughs> so the thing is, a Tom, single throwaway tweet, and I destroyed Marvel films. <laughs> you see, uh, Aparna, Tom spends a lot of time complaining that how hard done by he is that he has the same name as Tom Holland, the real Tom Holland. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. imagine being the real Tom Holland and living in fear that this elderly historian <laughs> this, this is clown. Gonna- it's going to get you cancelled and destroy yeah. your oh. film career at any moment. Yeah, it was, Tom, it was, with great power comes great responsibility. Uh, that's that's so you know true. what the and great I, thing is. And I he never hears that. that. No one ever tells him that. <laughs> I, I had to, well, it was it was a shock to realise that I'd, I'd uh, yeah I basically destroyed the publicity program for for the new Spider Man film. Um, <laughs> what can you do? As a Batman fan, I don't mind. You yeah, just exactly. stay away from Bruce Wayne. Exactly. <laughs> I'm not going to mention that. Um, Apana, that was fabulous. I mean, what a sweep. So all the way from uh, Mahenjadaro, all the way up to uh, to modern Delhi. Yeah, I don't think uh, we've done 2,500 years or, or more, <laughs> probably longer. Uh, There's in a so much before, I've left so. out. There's so much well, we've left out. We haven't gone northeast. We haven't spoken about the Himalayan kingdoms. <laughs> I forgot to say lots of things that I'd, I'd made notes about because no, it's you know, brilliant. I hear the clock ticking. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, I, I didn't think it was possible to do a history of India through 10 buildings in, a, in, in just, just over an hour. Um, but it's a, a challenge that you have triumphantly passed. So thank you. heartiest congratulations and many, many thanks. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Thank you. So uh, that concludes the entire history of India. Uh, We will see you on The Rest is History uh, next time for more historical meanderings. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like Gaul. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.